Hello, business builders. Welcome to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we interview founders of America's fastest growing companies. Our mission is to arm you with the tools and the confidence to scale your own venture. So to that end, every now and then, we gladly welcome a non-founder leader, thinker, or influencer to help you do just that. I'm Drew McClure. My co-host is Jordan Mitchell, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, Randy, thank you so much for taking time in this busy and chaotic time to be on the podcast today. Uh, it's good to be here, Drew. Good to be with you, and probably is a great time for this conversation. Absolutely. And just for context's sake, for people that might be listening to this in the future, we're having this conversation on March 26th. Uh, and the reason why that's important is we're in the middle of this COVID uh, new world, this new landscape that we all find ourselves in. I'm at my home right now having this conversation. Randy is in his home office. Um, and so I was just telling him beforehand um, that this is such a timely interview. I'd already had him on mind. He, Randy is a mentor of mine and even advisor to my business. Um, but I had already had this in mind to interview him about his new book called Real Hope, How Hope Drives Positive Actions That Lead to Business, Leadership, and Real World Victory. I already had him on the calendar, and uh, then this popped up, this whole new world of chaos and crisis and fear and uh, changing the landscape of business, and there's no better person to interview uh, than Randy. And so just to, to give our audience a context, can you give us a little bit of your background in business uh, in particular as a, as a turnaround, quote unquote, turnaround CEO. Yeah, sure. Sure, Drew. Thank you. Uh, and it is a unique time for us to uh, have this conversation. And, uh, you know, I think that it's, you know, it's, it is different from the standpoint of what is generating the issues uh, and all of the concerns relative to some of the things that I've dealt with, but I've dealt with a lot of crises in my career. Sure. So as we talk today, I'll share with you some of those, some of the, the mentality and the actions that I had to take around crisis management. Amazing. But my, my, uh, my background is, you know, I spent the better part of my career, uh, about 27 years in the General Electric Company. I worked in a host of different businesses in GE, uh, from the old uh, kind of grinded out industrial businesses for a number of years to working in uh, medical systems, uh, diagnostic imaging, where I had a broad uh, cross-section of North America. I had responsibility for technicians going into hospitals and clinics and maintaining mm -hmm. diagnostic imaging equipment uh, to, uh, you know, actually uh, working uh, in uh, GE Capital in my last role, and uh, not that I was a financial wizard. I think anybody in GE had to be strong from a financial background standpoint, but really because it was a business in GE Capital that just had a lot of operational problems. Mm. So across that 27 years and across all the dif different businesses in GE, you know, I had the opportunity to become known as a guy who could really go in and deal with problem businesses or, or businesses with issues or businesses that were underperforming. So I kind of built that reputation in the General Electric Company. And the last business that I ran in GE Capital was a business that at the time was the worst performing business in the General Electric Company. Wow. It was losing $100 million a year net of operations. And in 22 months, I got it to positive uh, financial performance. Wow. And so for that, I got the uh, Turnaround of the Year Award 
Ford and the entire General Electric Company in the 2001. And, uh, you know, that led me to um, uh, kind of my next opportunity, which was ultimately I left the General Electric Company and uh, went to work as the CEO for Philips Medical Systems North America, Philips being a Dutch-based business in diagnostic imaging, and and like GE, a conglomerate that did a lot of different things. Right. But I got the opportunity to run the whole North American business, which was a pretty significant opportunity, a a multi-billion dollar business. Wow. And and uniqueness about it was, was again, uh, Philips had gone from just being an x-ray business to being a full line provider in diagnostic imaging. So they had spent about $5 billion buying nuclear medicine capability, CT capability, MRI capability. And a year later, they had never really integrated those businesses as well. So that sure. was why I got the opportunity at Philips. I spent about uh, two and a half years there, and then I was recruited and have, as you know, worked for the last 13 years in private equity. And I've worked in private equity, both running portfolio businesses as the CEO, reporting to a board of directors in two particular instances, and they were both businesses that were underperforming yeah. uh, their performa or their market, their market capabilities. And then I also worked as an operating partner during the Great Recession, helping, wow. helping a private equity company deal with 30 portfolio companies and the things that the CEOs needed to do, you know, to kind of batten down the hatches during that tough time of 2008 to 2010. Mm. So pretty diverse career, pretty diverse background. I've uh, been a CEO a number of times, uh, been a uh, you know, consultant uh, off and on for a number of times, a number of different CEOs, and I guess you could say I've had more than my fair share of crisis experience. Oh my gosh, yeah, and that's what first you know, drew me to you when we were initially talking, was just watching uh, from afar, first seeing your TEDx video, then hearing about your resume, then learning a little bit more through you. You were gracious enough to send me your book, your first book, and I read that. Uh, cover to cover, underlined almost the entire book. And I was just at first attracted to you and still attracted to you and your ability to be in an ever-changing landscape in crisis moments and find courage, find hope, and find clear direction to move forward. And that's what's so interesting to me today is that we find ourselves again in a changing landscape with a new crisis. Uh, But I wonder, are there similar principles and lessons that even though the, the uniqueness of our present challenge is here, are there common things that you've faced, whether in the Great Recession, right, like in 2008, or um, in seeing an underperforming business with unique challenges that still hold true? Your, especially your strategy of hope is what comes to mind. Uh, but I wonder if you could just speak to that some. Like, what do you, what do you see and what are you feeling right now uh, in this current climate that might apply to what you've experienced in the past? Well, it is a new world, and, and what I, when I say that, I say, you know, I don't think there's been any CEO or any business leader or small business owner that's had to face into their landscape of being able to do business or even open their business on a day-to-day basis change overnight. You know, uh, 2008 and 2009 were a tough time, but you could kind of see the train coming down the tracks. Right. And, some time to adjust to that and take some actions around it. Um, And and there have been other times where, you know, people in communities have been impacted by 
weather situations or by, you know, other kind of community kind of things that have impacted their business, but nothing I think will ever, I hope nothing ever happens in either of our lifetimes again, equivalent to this, because it really is uh, an overnight change and one that is very difficult for any of us to define an end to right now. And I think, I think we all as not just business people, but as, fathers and, 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 and husbands and, and life coaches and the kind of things that we are, we all, and as Americans, we all like to define an end to something. Right. So that's the most difficult part of this. But I can tell you the one thing that I believe that I've used in crisis management prior to this that I think is equally as important in this crisis as it was in any crisis that I worked in before and that is communications. Mm. So I really believe that the leader's responsibility, be that a small business leader or be that somebody that is running our country or is running a large corporation, has really got the responsibility for very clear, very consistent, and, and very focused communications. Mm. I think that a lot of people, businesses that I've gone into, it, it amazed me, Drew, and I've shared this with you before, the number of people in a bad business that was really threatened with, you know, the ending of that business that worked there that didn't know how bad things were. Mm. Didn't really know what the issues were. Really didn't know what was needed to be done about the issues. And once there was a plan developed, you know, really had never had anything shared with them about that plan. So I don't think anything could be, uh, you know, more important. Uh, than communications during this time. So at this point, though, when you're when you're referring to communication, it sounds like opening the the channels. So when you're saying that many business owners didn't even know what was happening, wasn't even just them communicating their vision. It was even having conversations right. with people in their organization to even get an accurate understanding of where we're at. Is that right? Right. right. That's exactly right. Okay. Because I remember that would being again in, in in hearing your story and reading your book and talking with you over lunch and just. The, the steps you took to actually getting conversations started, you know, um, what was the, uh, what was the email chain that you had set up with your, your company? Oh, that yeah, the, yeah. The ask Randy, ask Randy, ask Randy. Yeah. You know, it was uh, the whole premise there is, is that when I first went in was to have town halls and to just put myself out in front of the organization. A lot of people in, in organizations have never even met the CEO less much heard from him or heard what he thinks, you know, in real time. Mm. So I tried to have as many town halls, meet as many people as I could. And I tried to listen. I think that's another thing that could really be very effective in today's time is to listen, mm. listen to what your people are saying, listen to what their thoughts are, listen to their concerns, you know, and then what you are able to do is kind of craft your communications around what you see the needs of the business and the needs of the organization are. And so the Ask Randy's were, you can't have town halls every day. So the Ask Randy's were sending an email to every person in the organization every week and then ultimately became every two weeks. And then ultimately, as you really strengthen the communications, you can do it once a month. Right now, I think it necessitates maybe even once a day in our right. current environment but strengthen those communications and, and have them direct. And you know what I've always told people, Drew, and you heard me tell you this, is, is that this communication came from me, not from, not from someone in HR, not from yeah. my uh, admin. It came from me, and people could hit the reply button. Mm. 
you know, and actually reply to the CEO. And it can be pretty overwhelming, but it can also trigger great allegiance and great, uh, great relationships from not just the crisis period of time, but that period of time going forward with the business where things will get back to normal and things will need to be done and you'll need the support and you'll need the uh, continued allegiance of that organization as opposed to them feeling that, hey, the way I got treated and the way I got communicated to, this may not just be the right place for me to work. Going right, forward. right. I mean, I, I was thinking about this the other day, my business partner and I, Jordan, who you know as well, we're saying, man, some of the decisions we're facing and even helping clients face, we just asked this question, like, what story would we want to tell about this 10 years from now? You know, and what story would people working for us and working with us, would we want them to tell about us 10 years from now, how we handled it, you know, our attitude, our, our generosity, our, our connection, right? Um, and so I, I even think about you, you were talking about when you first instituted that, that Ask Randy policy, that often, especially over the first few months, you were spending your weekends just literally trying to reply to all the emails and give a thoughtful response, right? Now more than ever, I'm, I feel like this would be the perfect strategy for a business owner. If you have a team of any kind, small or large, to institute this kind of ask me email and, and to hear daily from them, at least weekly, a message of hope or clarity or here's the decisions we're making or here's the questions we're asking. Uh, because I wonder too, if some of the innovation that needs to happen in this new landscape might come from unexpected places. You might have someone downline from you that might actually have a critical insight or observation or idea that could even help the leadership out, the CEO of the company understand how to pivot, right? Um, so opening those dialogues, opening those regular communications, not being afraid and sheltering yourself and kind of hoping, I just think about stress responses, right? We all have different stress responses. One might be to hide, to kind of abdicate, throw your hands up and just hope things get better and your team's floundering looking for direction or two, to make rash decisions without listening and taking a full kind of picture and inventory. So um, can you speak to that some? Like if you, were, if you were leading a business, no matter what size right now, would you reinstitute the Ask Randy email? Would you be communicating on a daily, weekly basis? What would you be thinking? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it's, um, you know, it's a very uh, trying time for anybody relative to the bombardment of communications that are really taking place. I mean, you know, just if you just watch the news for a two hour period, you can go from panic to relief to panic, you know, oh, yeah. just depending upon what channel you're tuned into and what person that you're listening to. So I think what could really be uh, extremely important in that is, and I, let me tell you more, uh, something that I saw uh, online that I was really touched by. They were interviewing small business owners in this particular news segment. And there was a, was a gentleman who has a uh, restaurant that he shut down. And he has, I believe he said 75 employees that he's had to let them all go. With mm. Maybe one or two people that are helping him just kind of taking care of things. They, they aren't even trying to do the, you know, hey, take it out uh, plan for meals. And the guy was on the verge of tears. And he really was not just because of the 75 employees and how well he knew them and how much he cared for them, but his real message was about how's this impacting their families? How's it impacting their children? How's it impacting, you know, their, their ability to, you know, to help in their neighborhoods. And I really thought that, you know, 
what was very clear about this guy's message and about what he was saying to his employees and what he was saying on this news clip was what I've always shared with you, Drew, is the most important part of leadership and I think most important part of communications, and that's authenticity. Mm. So you may not be able to solve today's problem. You may not be able to say when today's problem is going to end. You may not be able to say when somebody's going to go back to work or when they're going to be able to work 40 hours a week instead of 20 hours a week. But what you can do as a leader is you can communicate and communicate authenticity, authenticity to them. Mm. That you really care about them. You care about their family. Here's where the business is. Here's what we're having to do just to sustain the business so there is a job when you come back. You could communicate with them. I'm encouraged by, by, the, by the bill that Congress just passed. I'm going to the bank and see about a small business loan. Those kind of things, that kind of in-depth communication about what yeah. you're doing every day to those 75 people can be so strong in their hope. Wow. You know what I've told you before is, and, and, and I'll go ahead and say it now, is, is that I shared in my first book, and then I wrote a second book about this, and I kind of ended the first book with, is that, you know, people have always said in business that hope is not a strategy. And I absolutely, totally disagree with that. And you know yeah. I do. Yep. And, and I say that because when I talked about early on being a guy that has gone in and turned around businesses, being a guy who's had to fix businesses, being a guy who's had to lay off people as a part of that to fix businesses. What I have seen in just about every person that I've walked into those businesses over my career has been the hope that this guy and whoever he is is coming in here, this Randy Dobb, that he's going to actually do something, mm. get this business to where I've got a job. Or he's going to tell me that, hey, this business isn't going to make it and you need to go find a job somewhere else because I got a house payment. I need to feed my kids. I'm worried about, am I going to be able to send them to school? And so I believe that hope is extremely important mm. to employees, you know, because their hopes are their families, their dreams, their financial responsibilities. Wow. And, and, and unless you can really uh, have them feel that they have hope, I don't know that your business has hope because your most important asset may walk out that door and never come back. Wow. Man, yeah, I remember you even talking about when you would come in, that the first thing you would look for is who still has hope. Yeah. That, that was, again, part of your strategy was if you're, if you're talking to the core team or who, you know, you're like, who here still has hope? Yeah. I need to lock onto them, work with them, because that's going to be the key to whatever decisions we make is actually partnering with the hope that is either there or needs to be there. Yeah, right? it's really interesting, Drew, is that a lot of these businesses got to, it, most of those businesses got to the bad place because of lack of leadership at the top. And when there's lack of leadership, the next thing that happens is there's a lack of hope by that next level. And then that permeates to the next level. And pretty soon people are just waiting for the hammer to drop, you know? They, so without that leadership and without instilling that hope, and I saw that's kind of come full circle back to, I don't know how long this virus is going to last. I don't know, you know, but I, but I think there are a lot of good things going on in terms of increasing unemployment benefits, in terms of money for small businesses, in terms of the checks that will be mailed out to people at various income levels. And, and, and I think that all those things need to be taken. 
and taken by the person who is a business leader, whether it's that small business leader or that large corporation business leader and reinforce the people, both what's happening in the environment around them and what's happening in their particular business environment and how they're going to weather the storm and how they really look forward to the day they walk back in the door and go back to work for them. And I think without those communications, people are going to make up their minds whether they were really working for the right person or not, you know, during yeah, absolutely. Or they're going to freak out and make problems worse for you and for your business, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, don't forget prior to this virus, what a tight, tight labor market we were in, mm. how much people were looking for skills and trying to determine how to retain the skills they had. We'll get back to that. Yeah. We will get back to that. And, and I think that, that how you handle this and your communications and your authenticity as a leader will be a big, important part of uh, your, your business going forward when good times return. Mm. And that's it, that's it, right? That there is, I would say, one of the things you, you uh, wrote in your book was hope being rooted in that there is a there is a good future ahead of us yeah right and that we can raise above the current moment and go things will get back to normal and starting there is a premise like we will get to even if it's a new normal we will get to a a good place again or a prosperous place a place of potential and opportunity again but we've got to weather this storm right absolutely absolutely you know i'm a i'm an eternal optimist and what i really believe is beyond some of the things that we've just discussed that I believe an outcome of this virus is, is that we'll look differently at healthcare. Mm. We'll look differently at how people are covered in healthcare. We'll look differently at the impact of private insurance companies and the number of people on a yearly basis that, you know, go into bankruptcy because of their inability to afford healthcare. I think we'll look differently at supply chain, you know, I think we're learning some big, important things about supply chain relative to not just American businesses, but relative to the supplies and the pharmaceuticals and the capabilities of our, of our own healthcare system. So I think there'll be, you know, there, these are some really tough times and I don't, I don't minimize that. And I'm in that high risk age group. So I, I, I take this thing very seriously, but I see good things on the other side of it. Well, I also see it revolutionizing the way we do work, like the forced innovation of being able to move things virtually. And of course, there's some things you can never replace in person. And so we'll get back to semblances of in person. But could we innovate on even how work is done in the modern age with virtual opportunities like this? You know, Uh, I think that's going to be really interesting to see. Right now, I work with a large insurance company uh, as one of their key coaches. And they've had to I've been so impressed by them, how rapidly they've changed. Um, and, and helped people who were, you know, their business was based off in-home visits that they would go in home and talk with a family about their mortgage protection or their life insurance or whatever. And now some people are still okay with that, but a lot aren't. And so they've had to pivot and teach and train and, and tell people how to get them on the phone or to do zoom like we're doing now together. And it's working and their people have been encouraged that their leadership responded quickly, had a clear direction and have been surprised. They just previously thought there was no way I could make a sale uh, virtually. And yet many of them are seeing the same amount of results or greater in this time. And they're realizing like that was a false assumption, you know, and this crisis is forcing innovation. But one of the things I said to them, I was talking to their leadership and they were saying, man, we've got to combat, combat the voice of fear. We need to you know, have hope and optimism. I'm like, yes, yes, you do. Uh, but then the thing I told them that I think you would agree with, I'm, I want to ask you, 
as I said, but don't be arrogant and, and make your hope sound like you know that you've got it figured out or that you know exactly what the future is going to look like. I said, I would like you guys to communicate not that you guys have hope because you figured it out, but that you have hope because you are confident in your ability to figure it out. That that's different. Like that you, you are confident that you have the ability, that we have the ability to figure it out. Even if we don't know exactly what it's going to look like and the landscape is changing, we have the skills to adjust. And that's where our confidence is coming from, that we will keep observing and orienting and adjusting and making decisions and we'll figure this out versus, guys, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. We've got it figured out. It's like no one does. No one's got anything figured out right now. Um, so I wonder what you think about that, that confidence and the ability to figure it out versus I've got it figured out, guys. We're good. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that gets back. It kind of touches again on authenticity, right? Right. You, know, right. you, you, you got it. I think uh, when, when I talk about authenticity for, you know, anybody's ever listened to this podcast and they say, well, what do you really mean when you say authenticity? Mm. It's, it's being honest. It's not being afraid to expose your vulnerabilities. Mm. You know? It's, uh, you know, it's saying to somebody, you know, as a CEO or as a business leader, or, you know, even if you're running a small business, you know, that's a really good point. I don't have an answer. I'm going to have to work on that. I'll have to find that. And so, I, you know, that's really what I mean by authenticity is being yourself, exposing yourself, talking about what you know and what you don't know, instead of always believing you have the answer. And then further to that, to your, to your point and to your message, which I think by the way is great. It's a great example. But, you know, in this latest book, In Real Hope, one of the lines I love the most in that book is actually I quoted another lady as she spoke about hope. And that line goes something like this. I'll paraphrase it. And, and I see hope as an action. You know, hopelessness yep. is, is an is a adjective, okay? Hope is an action. And, and the way she talks about hope is, and I think that's the way people have to think about it in our current crisis, Hope is not a lottery ticket mm. that you clutch and sit on the sofa waiting for something good to happen to you. Hope is a sledgehammer that you knock down doors and take action and see what happens next. Come on. You know, and so I think that is one of the most powerful lines in that book. And it really, for me, as I've talked to a lot of people, Drew, describes hope and where we are today more than anything, you know? Yep. And that's the first I've written down in my notes right here to ask you about hope is a verb. Uh, and you've said it's a call to action. And that's it's exactly what we're talking about now. Yeah. Hope isn't. And that's what I, I was reading this. I'm like, man, how is he going to describe this differently than just sitting on the couch, wishing, hoping things would change. And you started laying out the cascading effects that real hope has. Yeah. The, the kind of real hope you're talking about is looking for something and then begins to lean into something. It has a hope led to a decision and that decision led to an outcome and these, you repeat that cycle, that's where you see hope actually being a verb. And that's what we're talking about here. Um, so, uh, and, may, and maybe, and, and uh, you're exactly right. And, and, you know, for those that are listening to the podcast, again, if you don't mind, I think I could mention, you know, my biggest exhibit of hope is the battle that I've faced with my daughter uh, for the last nine and a half years. My daughter at 31 years old, very briefly, was diagnosed in, in Right after delivering my, my grandson, seven weeks pre premature, she was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And uh, the first oncologist that walked into her hospital room uh, 
said, you know, we're going to make you as comfortable as we can for the six to eight months that you have left to live. And she just, she, she lost it. And she's got a new baby in prenatal intensive care. She's 31 years old. And, and all I knew was just to escort that oncologist out of the room because what she was exhibiting to my daughter was, was that there was no hope. Mm. And, and I knew how serious that pancreatic cancer was, didn't really understand the degree to which it was kind of a death sentence, more or less, nine and a half years ago. But what I knew was, was that there was no way for me to, to maintain uh, my one and only daughter uh, in, in life without establishing hope uh, that there was something that we can do. Mm. Now, there's a lot more to that story, as you know, but for your audience, if they go to YouTube, they look at Randy Dobbs, and they look at, by the way, pretty interesting title, The Business of Hope. Yes. So, but five years ago, five years ago, I was talking about this business of hope, okay? And I've been living hope through a lot of businesses that I've run. I've been living hope through uh, a number of turnarounds. I've been living hope through my daughter's nine and a half year battle, and I finally wrote a book about real hope. But go to YouTube, and in 11 minutes, you can watch The Business of Hope, and you can see how we used hope uh, to battle pancreatic cancer. Uh, and my daughter is beating the odds after a lot of things are doing. Matter of fact, she's on a clinical medicine today. Uh, dealing with, with brain cancer, the pancreatic cancer metastasized to her brain. But she's still fighting, and she's still beating it. And so this thing about hope is real, Drew. Oh, God, yes. It's not just about the book. It's about five years ago, me, uh, me, me, me believing this enough to do a TED Talk uh, with my daughter entitled The Business of Hope. And it's about 10 years ago, believing that was a way to fix a bad business. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, and and even further back than that. I mean, yeah, when I was when I was inviting you and I was preparing for this interview, I just I kept having the scene that I imagined because I wasn't there, obviously, but the scene of you with the doctor in the hallway. And if, I don't know if you are familiar with that idea of like a, a branch theory, you know, in yeah. time that, that um, the butterfly effect, right? Like at different decisions right. would branch off different outcomes. And I was just imagining the Randy Dobbs in that scenario, choosing hope. And what hope led to versus if you didn't have hope and what the cascading effect of that might have been. And we don't know, but I wonder almost in business and life and crisis, um, can we step back for a second and, and see the reality of hope or lack of hope and the cascading effects? So can you imagine uh, for me and with me right now, what might have been different if you had no hope, if you had chosen to partner almost with despair and hopelessness, what that might've been like for you and your daughter and that journey versus where you are now and the decisions that were made because of hope. I, I, you know, listen, I think that's a great question. It's a great thought process. And I'll be very honest with you. I, I don't believe my daughter would be here. Mm. And that would be the biggest loss. I would tell you that I could quantify around hope. I would also tell you that I don't think you'd be doing a podcast with me today because I wouldn't have the reputation as a leader mm. that I have and I wouldn't be able to point to the things that have been done, you know, uh, because you know, hope has, hope has been at the core of what I've been trying to instill in people for years, whether it be in a bad business 
whether it be in a way that they think about their communications, whether it be in a battle against a, a, a terrible disease, but hope has been at the core of what's really driven me. And that goes all the way back to, you know, my childhood when my parents divorced at an early age and my, you know, and my, uh, my mother remarried an abusive alcoholic. And I ended up, you know, during my high school years, protecting my mother and my three younger sisters from, from this, you know, abusive alcoholic. And, you know, my grandmother uh, was really kind of the only person that I could turn to that was, you know, really helping me through this whole time. Wow. And she just taught me, you know, that there was hope, that there were better days ahead. And that what she looked me in the eye and said, you cannot give up. And, you know, and I think that's the difference, uh, yeah. Drew, in people who, who don't give up, who really have persistence. And to me, persistence and fighting the fight is, and continuing to fight the fight is everything. But they do it because they've got hope. And they, and they, may, they may get, they look, they may get down, and they may get edgy, but they don't ever really give up hope. And I think that's what's going to be really important as we go through the current crisis that we're in. You know, I've said to a lot of people, and I say it in the TED Talk, is the difference between what I felt the day I walked that doctor out of the room was look what she knew was and that you know she knew she knew the statistics with pancreatic cancer she knew what a death sentence it was and what she wanted to do the best way she could she wanted to manage elizabeth's dying i had hope i wanted to manage elizabeth's living come on okay and so for nine and a half years i've been managing my daughter's living and i think you think when you think about that you know, that's the difference. And yeah. that's what I think hope does. And so in today's world, are you managing your business dying <laughs> because of this virus and Come your on. people went away and I'll never see them again and, and blah, blah, blah. Are you managing your business living for a better day and Come your on. employees being there with you and instilling that hope in them? I still remember the most beautiful thing I've ever heard was you, you telling me the conversation you had with your daughter and her basically saying, dad, I've seen you be the CEO of hope for so many businesses, but I'm asking you to be the CEO of my healthcare, you yeah. know, and you yeah. taking on that task. What a beautiful heart wrenching moment. And whether that was you assembling and still continuing to look around the country and the world and assembling the best doctors and the best uh, options for her and literally being the CEO of her health journey, you yeah. know, into this has been, Again, it's real for you starting at the bottom of GE and the factory floor, working your way all the way up, you know, starting from an abusive home and making something of yourself. To me, what I keep hearing from you is that hope means there's always something we can do. There that's, is. Some, that's something you said earlier that I just wrote down in this interview is that maybe the basis of hope is believing there is always something we can do. Yeah. You yeah. know, well, I think that's absolutely right. A really good takeaway. Man, well, let me read you this. It might be strange for you to have someone read to you from your book. <laughs> let me read to you this, this uh, section. I found two that I thought were incredibly potent for right now where we're at, and then I'd love your thoughts on it. Um, but you said, great leaders are hopeful. Great leaders share a message of hope. Great leaders live a life that finds hope in every situation, and great leaders manifest new opportunities because of that hope. You said, history is replete with examples of great leaders who had hope. Abraham Lincoln famously said, my dream is a place and a time where America will once again be seen as the last best hope of earth. In the, in the devastation of the Civil War, Lincoln saw hope as the cornerstone that would make or break the future of the country. 
that to me, I had no idea that that quote came at that time, that it was actually on the back end of the civil war and the devastating effects that it had on the country. Yet in that moment, he was choosing hope to be the cornerstone of his message. Exactly. Exactly. I would love to hear you just speak to that. Uh, We already have, but I just think that's so timely that great leaders have hope, great leaders share messages of hope, and great leaders manifest opportunities that came from that hope. What can you tell us about that right now? Well, you know, as you know, you've read enough of uh, and talked to me enough, read the things that I've written, and you've talked to me enough to know that I'm a real buff uh, relative to uh, uh, presidents and and our past and and wars. And, And so there's just so much to be learned from the great leadership that has built this country over time. And I think Lincoln is one of the most, uh, probably in my opinion, one of the, one of the most uh, important leaders that we had in a very, very critical time period. And a guy who really sacrificed not just his life because he was assassinated at the end, but I think really sacrificed his family and his mental well-being and, and the toll that it took on him to do what he did from the, Start the day he walked into office, you know, with Fort Sumter, and the day that he walked out of office with an assassination. Uh, yes. And these words of hope before. There's another great quote that you've heard me use before about Lincoln, and that is that he says, the best thing about the future is that it comes one day at a time. Mm. And I love that quote, and I think that ties into why you hear him talk about hope. And I think that hearing Lincoln talk about hope, I, I, I really appreciate you using that part. It's a, it's, a, it's a great introduction to me sharing that other quote, which, you know, yeah. I, I, it's actually in my TED Talk. Yeah. That yeah. is, you know, thinking about the great thing about the future is, is it happens one day at a time. And so I think that's the way you, that a lot of business leaders and a lot of family leaders have to deal with the current crisis that we're in. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a future for us. And all we can do right now is deal with that future one day at a time. Come on. I mean, that, that might be the one thing, if whoever you are listening right now, you need to hear. There is a future for us, and all we have to focus is one day at a time. Um, you know, I have several friends uh, who are uh, special forces, Navy SEALs, those kinds of things. And I was learning from one of them, and he was talking about, uh, and Bud's in particular, going through Navy SEAL training. It's so intense. Right. And they, they, they intentionally said, test the body to test the mind, right? And they put them in these circumstances they don't see coming and uh, keep them on their toes. And he said that the, the tactic that they teach people is to keep the world small. Yep. And that what he meant by that was you can't think about this in terms of the next five days and how hellish it's going to be and all the unknowns coming. He's like, you'll drop out immediately. He's like, but if you can break it down to the next meal that he said, that, I can't remember if it was every four hours or six hours, they have to feed you, right, right? right? You know that's coming. And he's like, it's a series of sunups and sundowns. And yeah. so you could lock in for a series of sunups and sundowns and just make your world small. What am I doing right now? What's the next step? And you always have enough energy and resources for right now, yeah. right? And I, yeah. I, I just think that's what we need as a business. That's what I'm coaching my, lead, my business leaders on too, is like, did you do what you could do today? Yep. Yeah. Okay, and that was a good day. And then tomorrow, observe, you know, this is the OODA loop from the Air Force. You observe, you orient, you decide, and then you act. And then you do that all over again. So take a fresh observation of the world and what's going on in your business, orient yourself to it, make a firm decision, take that action, and then just keep doing that until 
the future is today. You know, you just keep having these moments of today. So, man, that is so timely for, for a leader to hear right now that you just, you, you can't predict the future. And that's hard for us, isn't it? Because we want our quarterly projections. We want our, we want our 10-year game plan, our five-year target, right? And right now, we don't even know if we're going to be let out of our homes in the next month or six months, right? Yeah, no, you know, that's exactly right, Drew. And you really have embellished that great. I appreciate it. That was good for me to hear what you just said. And, I, and I, I, I've talked to some Navy SEALs as well, and I, I hear that same thing from them. But, you know, what's also refreshing is, is that, um, as an example, you, you, you hear and see uh, what Ford is doing right now, you know, to, to get into the production of uh, masks, to get into the production of, uh, of uh, ventilators. And, you know, nobody at Ford's talking about how many pickups they're not making a week right now. Nobody at Ford's talking about what's this going to do to our second quarter earnings. Nobody's talking about what's our stock going to be worth it for. Yeah. All I'm hearing out of Ford is what can they do to help the country right now. And it may be the first time since World War II that we've really seen people act and think like this. And it's yes. Oh, God. You know, it's so funny. I've, not funny, but just coincidence. For the last month, I've been taking my time and every night listening on audio to the story of Winston Churchill, in particular, the play-by-play -play of the, the impending invasion of Germany. Right. And just how it changed the entire world. I mean, they had blackouts every night, so they wanted to keep the bombers from being able to see their lights from above. So they manda mandated curfews and they mandated blackouts where they couldn't have any lights on. And, and they did, there are all these ripple effects like we're seeing now of the, the, the crisis and how it affected them. And I was telling a friend when this started, I was like, it feels like we're at war, just the war is invisible. You yeah, know, like the yeah. economy, but it's, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around. Like, we have to treat this like we're at war and factories are now being used to produce airplanes instead of automobiles. And right. just like you're saying, Ford is now producing ventilators. But what we see in war, what we saw after 9-11 that we're having a hard time seeing now is moving from self-preservation to we preservation. Yeah. From me thinking to us thinking. And I would love for you just to encourage us as business leaders and owners to do maybe what Ford's doing and some others are right now. Like the, the, every instinct in us is probably saying, what about me? Protect me. But how do we in these times come together and think about we like, how can I be a part of our solution and knowing there's probably innovation in that you might actually even make money in the opportunities that come from being of service to the community and changing your, your, your mindset. But I've just, my, my business partner and I were just talking about this and uh, forgive me for talking so much, but I'm passionate about this. And we were talking about the difference of systems, the robust systems, fragile systems and anti-fragile systems, right? And that the fragile ones are getting crushed. The robust ones are getting tested, like the healthcare system and big business, but anti-fragile are the ones that can survive pressure. And the best anti-fragile system you can find are, are healthy families, right? right. Meaning good right. connection, good like tribal fam family connections. And I'm like, for business right now, we need to think in those terms. Like we need to think of your industry as a family and how are you a part of that family and who do you need to help, whether it's your customer or your ally or your, your enemy, you know, like- yeah. The only way we're going to get through this is being anti-fragile, which is going to be real we thinking instead of me thinking. Yeah, I agree with that. I completely agree with that. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Just that well, wartime, that wartime thinking, you know? Yeah, I, I think a good example of that is is that, you know, we, we go into the grocery store every week, right? Right. And when we go into the grocery store, you know, we have a tendency to say, uh, well, you know, somebody working as a cashier in a grocery store, somebody who's stocking the shelves in the grocery store, uh, you know, we're really glad that they're there. We're glad that they're doing that employment. But, you know, 
I don't know that we look at them as a critical worker for uh, for this economy. It just yeah. happens because we go to the grocery store. Look at what's happened to that. We've got people that are going to the grocery stores to be there for me and you who have been declared emergency workers and are risking their lives. Wow. Okay. And what I think about is, is that I hope that I never walk into a grocery store after this virus is over and not think differently about the people that are working there and thank them for what come on. Same thing for our healthcare workers. My sister is a lead room operating nurse in, uh, in, in a large hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. She also has responsibility for transferring patients from rural areas into this larger hospital in Memphis. And she's having to make life and death decisions right now. Mm. And uh, I, I'll never talk or interface with my sister again and not think about the responsibilities and the pressure that she's been put under during this time. Because let me tell you something, Drew, there is great or greater than anything I ever had to do as a CEO. That's right. And we need to think about that. And, and I, I think your, your analogy was great, but I think we need to take it a step further. I do too. Think about these families that are serving us right now and think about these people and the risk that they're taking and how important they are to sustaining the fabric of this society right now. Oh man. Yes. I, one of my best friends is a doctor at Emory at Choa. And, um, and I texted him just the other day, like, how are you doing, bud? Like what's going on? Uh, and he was optimistic. He said, I'm doing great. The kids are actually doing pretty well in the face of this disease. But he said, I'm working nonstop because so many of our doctors and nurses are getting sick and are getting quarantined that we're working on skeleton crew. So he's like, I'm literally working three, four days straight without a break. And uh, I was like, God, I just I already had respect for him. I already knew the craziness he was enduring on a normal basis. Right. But now when even your doctors and your nurses are getting sick and having to be quarantined, and there's even fewer, I mean, it's just incredible. So you're right, man. I'll, I'll never think about a grocery store clerk or a doctor or anybody the same way again. Um, one last question. I know your time is, is valuable and we, we need to wrap this up soon, but something I've been thinking about and I, 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 I'm careful to talk about it because I've seen it already being politicized about choosing one or the other. And I, I don't think that's a world I want to live in, but we're working right now as a society to flatten the health curve. Right. We use that word to flatten the curve by, yeah, yeah. by staying back. Right. Because we know that there could be a spike of illness and death that could overwhelm the system. And so I'm on board. We need to flatten that curve. I'm at home right now. We're taking our precautions. Right. Uh, and I would encourage anybody to do that. But what we're also seeing is the potential for a business curve of business death and people that were already living paycheck to paycheck um, and the economic hardship that this illness is causing. And I just had this question, like, can we find solutions? that seek to flatten both of those curves that don't pick one or the other, you know, whether it's economy or people dying or choosing people dying and putting, you know, at risk families and, and businesses and stuff out to, out to dry. I just didn't know if you had any thoughts about that as a business leader, or is that, am I wrong? Do I need to go, we don't even need to talk about the business curve right now and businesses dying. We just only need to focus on flattening the health curve. Uh, you're just someone I greatly respect. And that was on my mind that there's two curves happening right now that I would like to see us have strategy for to flatten. Uh, what is your thought on that? 
Well, first thought is, is it's, uh, in this whole podcast, it's the only real political question that you've asked me. <laughs> I don't want it to be political. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding you. Because there, it, it, is a, it is a political uh, 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 badminton right now going on around this, if you will. It is, yeah. But I, I do have some clear thoughts about it. And, and before I answer that question directly, let me, let me just say one other thing that I do feel strongly about around this decision. I feel that in crisis, uh, what's really important is strong, uh, directive, uh, well thought out, but not consensus driven leadership. Right. And I have never been able to turn a business around. I've never been able to instill hope in people without really going through a tough six to eight month period of making decisions that impacted employees, impacted families, impacted lives, impacted the business, impacted me. And so that's just what you sign up for when you sign up to a leadership role. And I think that, that we've had too many politicians who haven't signed up for that same leadership role that I've described that takes place in business. Yep. And so I think that the answer to your question is going to require a little stronger leadership and decision making uh, and base it on data the best you can. I've always based my facts on data, but I do personally believe that when you look at the data, maybe three weeks from now, two or three weeks from now, that there are areas in this country, Montana, okay, there are other areas in this country, small towns that comprise an awful lot of this country that where you'll see that both the infection rate and or the hospitalization rate has been very minimal just because of their exposure. Right. And being able to put some of those people back to work and open up some of those businesses, I think will help to start to flatten that curve of the economy. Mm. Do yeah. I believe that's going to be possible in New York state or New York city in the next three weeks? No, I don't. Right. Right. I think it may be months. Yep. And I think you got to you got to close the borders, okay? And so I think that because look, look, we're we are fifty Italy's, France, Germany's. That's right. Yeah. And so we have to think about I think our states like you think about the countries, and then you'll have to think about within those states what could take what could take place. I mean, it's very clear to me, Drew, that. New York City is the result of a lot of international interfaces in that city. A lot, eight million people living on top of each other and riding subways together. Right. Uh, New Orleans is the result of having Mardi Gras and people coming down from all over the world to go to Mardi Gras. But I mean, you, Los Angeles, kind of the same way. So I think there are places that whether they like it or not, it's going to take longer. And it, it, and I, I really I really believe that Governor Cuomo is providing great leadership to the state of New York. I'm I'm probably as impressed with him as anybody that I that I've watched so from a from a political leadership standpoint. Yeah. yeah. But I think both of those things together are probably not only possible, but probably need to be done. That's right. You know, not just to flatten the curve on 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 you know the health not just to flatten the curve on the economy, but I also think to keep instilling hope in people that some actions have to be taken. You know, I, I, I didn't wait uh, 10 months to figure out exactly what we're going to do and then implement it all in the business. Right. Implemented things as quickly as I could along the way where I thought there was the least risk to the business, but I could start getting a return for it. So that's kind of my business way of thinking about and a long answer to your question. 
I love it. And that's a perfect way to end. And that wasn't political at all. I think we're all, again, hopefully when, when things like this happen, it should strip away some of those petty uh, divisions and instill more of a larger identity of us as a nation, of us as human beings trying to survive. And I even love your, your response right now is representative of an age group that's at higher risk for this infection and still saying like, we need some nuance to this. We need yeah. a firm decision, but we also probably need, probably need ongoing changes in the decisions of like, you know, the Atlantic I was reading was talking about what the future could look like. And they were saying having to play whack-a-mole where you're able to open certain things up for a period of time, but then you might have to quarantine again for a period of time. And as viruses pop up and go down, we might need to be flexible, agile, and make decisions that change, you know, and let businesses open in certain areas and then shut them down for a few weeks, you know? Um, but it's the blanket statements that worry me, you know? Yeah, yeah I like, agree. I agree. And you know, the, the, the other part of that is, and you just have to accept this as a business leader, you have to accept it as a, as a political leader. And that is the old axiom of you, you're going to make, you can make some of the people happy some of the time. You're never going to make everybody happy all the time. And mm -hmm. I listen to the changes and the things I had to do in business. Not everybody stood up and applauded for me. There were some real detractors in, in every business I've been in. While I still felt I was doing the right thing, I had to, I had to suffer the brunt of, uh, and a few can be pretty loud, you know? Mm. Well, here's what I'd love to end. Just one question. Um, if, if someone's listening right now, doesn't matter if it's a large organization, small organization, but they feel the weight and the responsibility of a business owner and they're freaking out and they're a little bit scared about right now in the changing landscape. What's just one thing you'd say to them directly? One message of hope, one thing of encouragement that you would just, you would speak into them if they were across the computer from you right now. Well, I would say the same thing I said to my daughter. That's probably the most important thing I could tell you. There are only kind of two kinds of people in this world when you get down to it. They're victims and they're fighters. And so you got a choice to make. Are you going to be a victim of this situation? Or are you going to fight for your business? Are you going to fight for your family? Are you going to fight for your life? Are you going to fight for tomorrow? Remember, the future comes one day at a time. So are you going to be a victim of what happens tomorrow? Or are you going to be a fighter for what happens tomorrow? God, you got me tearing up. Okay, that's where we're going to end it, my friends. Randy, thank you so, so much for this interview. I, I hope so many uh, people have a chance to see this. We're going to do our best to put it in front of as many people. We already have a vast listenership, but we're going to be making it available to even more people this time because we need your voice and we need voices uh, like yours of hope, of courage, and of wisdom that is not just blind optimism, but uh, a wisdom based off of years of experience of of uh, crisis and of, of changing landscapes and they're still being a way there's always a way and that's what i'm taking away from this interview that i need to maintain the hope that there's always something we can do so thank you randy thank you for your time and we will talk soon my friend thank you drew i really appreciate the opportunity for for me this is rewarding as well it's just everybody wants to be a part of the fight and, and if this helps i'm, I'm elated thank absolutely you. and just to close with your book real hope is out it's on amazon uh, is that the best place for them to find it? That's the best place to find it. There's also your first book, Transformational Leadership, which you should be getting as well. That would be a great tandem at this point to be a transformational leader for your team or your organization. Uh, and is there anything else you'd want me to direct them to? Any, any other work or website or way of connecting with you? No, other than you know, watching the TED Talk on the Business of Hope. I think I'd give them some insight into how I took my business learnings and applied them to a healthcare battle with my daughter. That may be good for a lot of people. Perfect. That's where we'll end, friend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Drew. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Okay, friends, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Head to 0to5000.com for exclusive tools to grow your business. That's Z-E-R-O-T-O-5000.com.